Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, first-class travel for perpetually curious foodies. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be at the controls today, along with our foodie fact-finder, James Winter. Hello! And on today's show, we are inducting another influential chef into our, what we're saying is, world-leading chef hall of fame, pulling back the velvet rope to propose another person who's changed the way we all cook and eat today. So without further ado, grab your whites and knife roll as we take a journey to meet the best chefs in the world. Hello, James. That was that was a, a very grand build-up, wasn't it? Yeah, Come it was. And, and we often debate this idea of the best chef. You know, we, we used to present this podcast with the best chef in the world, and he didn't like the name either. So I'm not entirely sure what it what it means. But I, I suppose for me, you know, to be in our Hall of Fame, these people have to have made a contribution to the gastronomy and food and cooking, and outlives their physical existence. Something that you know, you know. I mean, we were talking last week about the, the role of Jubilee pudding, you know, and, and whether it will stand the test of time. But I think to be in our Hall of Fame, you have to have made a contribution that has stood the test of time and, and something that, you know, other people will pick up and use and, and be inspired by. I think it's for me, whether that makes them the best or the most useful or, or just kind of, you know, just, you know, I don't know, the greatest. I don't know what adjective we need, but certainly I like to think that these are people that, We'll, you know, when 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 the next generation of uh, Journey to the Centre of Food podcasters are, are broadcasting in in a decade's time, you know, they will still be talking about some of these people. That's a good, but yeah, it's the standing the test of time, isn't it? It's the best kind of definition of greatness in my mind. Is but I mean, I'm thinking like obviously in the sporting context, but the ability for sustained greatness, but the greatness that then transcends and goes. And look, we know that you know legacies can also be a very uh, difficult and unpleasant thing in, in the person's lifetime because sometimes when people get to a certain age where they start considering their legacy or their, their life's work or how they'll be remembered it often makes people into um, slightly unpleasant characters as we've seen throughout history but it sometimes works as well because that that awareness of how I'm going to be remembered, how I make a difference in the world, as we discovered with our first inductee, was a conscious decision at times. It's like, oh, what can I do so people remember me and people want to keep talking about me? So no, absolutely. And I think that's that's a kind of ideology, or ideology, an idea of, of, of thought that stems all the way back to, you know, if the, if the Egyptians were all about this, right, they used to write their name on everything. You know, we only know the name Tutankhamun because he wrote it everywhere on his tomb. You know, we we don't know what he did or who he was or what, you know, we, we learnt about it subsequently. But really, we remember him because at school, he was the only Egyptian name you ever got to hear. You know, hopefully, you know, the people that we induct into our Hall of Fame will still be of interest to people that stumble across this podcast in many years to come because they'll still be relevant in some capacity. And, and I don't think in their lifetime, certainly this character I'm about to talk to you about, who many people will already know, I don't think was was that way focused. I don't think necessarily he was engineering his life to to have a legacy like that, but he certainly had elements of it. You know, he understood the value of publicity, for one. I've been putting some more thoughts as well, because I know last time we discussed our sort of... Uh, 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 our imaginary place, what our Hall of Fame is going to look like. And I think we kept our, you know, we, we originally started talking about sort of like a Hampton Court sort of dining room. And I've taken it a different way now. In my mind, I'm thinking it's going to be like, you know, you know, those sort of secret underground baddie layers like Spectre or, or, or Smirsh. Mm. They always have a huge shiny room with like a massive table and loads of like roaring fires. And everyone has like sort of big silver wing back chairs. Mm. That is going to be our Hall of Fame, I think, with like maybe a massive sort of mm. knife at one end of it, like really, really big knife at one end of it and possibly a huge whisk. Yeah, so like a big old cast iron stove 
Ooh, yes. You know, you know just because it's because it, obviously it's a food hall of fame, you know, and, and some nice brandies on a trolley being wheeled around by an elderly <laughs> gentleman. Oh, oh yeah, I like the idea that we'd have loads of actually nice things to eat and drink in there. And, oh, yeah, uh, well, it's a food hall of fame. I'd like to think that, there's, you know, that's what people are, you know, they're sitting around drinking some of those fine wines from uh, from Wine 52, which I'm sure you're about to mention. Or, oh, um, oh, well remembered. Uh, no, uh, wait, no, you're right. We have a... We have a <laughs> You're very professional, James, when it comes to our sponsors in a way that I've never had been. Uh, we have we have a sponsor. Uh, oh, and you'll like this one, listeners, because you get free wine. How would you like to try a cut case of exceptional wine for free? Uh, well, of course you would, uh, because anyone listening to this is probably quite a heavy drinker. Um, uh, <laughs> and so one of our sponsors is here to help. Uh, wines, Wine 52, I've got to get the name right. Wine 52 uh, are here uh, as a discovery club that uh, visit different wine regions every month. And they're, they're experts, handpick three wines from the best independent wineries in the rage, weege, region to send them to their members. Uh, and you get to try this for yourself. Go to wine52.com forward slash journey and cover the postage of five ninety five, And you're going to receive a case of three carefully selected wines for free. You can customise your case to your taste. Choose from white, red or a mixture of styles. And you get the Glug magazine, which tells you actually really interesting stuff about wines uh plus you get two tasty snacks as well uh which this time were like bargy flavored crisps which oh they sound good well yeah I and mean, they tasted better than they sounded as well because when i read it i was like mm. okay what's this but they were yeah they were they were very good uh and then after your free case you'll be part of the monthly wine club but there is no commitment uh you can try it see what you think and if it's not for you cancel or pause at any time uh unless you've drunk all three bottles of wine you can't make it to the computer uh which time you could probably do it the following month when you get three more so maybe that's what they do so yeah, uh, all good. you have to do <laughs> it sounds perfect doesn't it uh just go to www.wine52.com forward slash journey claim your case today right james the the fire is lit the old man is wheeling the brandy around and the doors are creaking open take us into the chef hall of fame who is who is coming in mm. this week now i mean it's a arguably you know, arguably should have been our first name on the list but we we, we we you know i decided to go slightly off off the well-trodden track but this gentleman is a man by the name of george Auguste Escoffier, which for many people Escoffier is the is the name of gastronomy in the world that you know is recognized for for all sorts of things and remembered today and, and was a huge you know, sort of figure in the gastronomic scene of England, in particular London, but also in France and, and elsewhere. But obviously, through his, his written work, became the benchmark for chefs, you know, for a hundred years and including today. And I remember, I remember going into the kitchen of one of the great chefs I've ever met, a guy called Pierre Kaufman, um, who uh, obviously famously ran Le Tonclair, but also opened the Waterside Inn with the Rue Brothers and all sorts of things. You know, taught Gordon Ramsay and, and Marco Pierre White had a cook, all this kind of stories. But he always would say, you just need one thing in the kitchen, you know, apart from your incredible skill, is a copy of Escoffier's recipes and that's it. You should be able to run a kitchen. You know, yeah, that's cool. you know, you know, that's all you need. It's your, it's your, it's your beginning of everything. And, 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 you know, what he did over his life, which, you know, I'll, I'll go into, you know, to give you an overview. I mean, it's effectively, I mean, it's, it's, he organized everything in a way that we, you know, obviously needed doing, but in a way that was so sensible and, and made, you know, absolute sort of organizational sense, but it's still the organization of it chefs follow in the kitchen today so that idea of of head chef demi chefs demi sous chef chef de party all these different ranks of, of chef 
was was Escoffier's doing. I mean, he was a military oh, really? man. He served in the French army. You know, he saw how armies operated and he saw how kitchens were disorganised and he organised it and he gave everyone a role. You know, he also saw that kitchens were pretty... You know, I mean, there's an irony here, as you'll see when I tell his story, but, you know, they were pretty rabble-rousing places, kitchen, usually run by pirates, let's say, you know, just doing what we needed to do to get by with, you know pretty much uncouth language there was drinking at work there was you know kitchens are tough places and people just did what they wanted to do and he was one of the first people to realize that this wasn't a healthy place for people to work so he tried to to stop that you know wow. and and he banned drinking in the kitchen he would organize staff meals you know he would make sure they were you know people were well fed and looked after in the kitchen so they were better and healthier people when they came to work so they were able to work for him for longer and do a better job and also he took these great big books of, of recipes which had started to be sort of compiled by the likes of Carême and other chefs, you know, in, in France, which full of sort of the, the beginnings of, you know, organised cookery, you know, these sauces and certain ways to serve and, and prepare different things. And he, he codified them one step further and, and, and he, you know, he came up with the idea for... Um, what are now called the five mother sauces, which you're going to ask me what they are, and we're going to we'll have to take a pause and because it's not a test, and I'll try to remember. But things like béarnaise, you know, you had Espanola sauce, and you have you know, but basic formulation of every sauce that a chef will need and cook today is, is in the beginnings of, of Escoffier's work, and he broke them down into a codified set of five, which once you had those five made, you could make any sort of variation you want to by adding different herbs or special wine or an extra bit of extra brown stock or whatever you know they were I mean obviously I know I know off the top of my head that they're bechamel velouté Espagnol, Espagnol, mm-hmm. sauce, tomate, and hollandaise. But I mean, I know these things. Of course obviously. you do, because you're a gastronome. <laughs> I, exactly. That's what people say to me all the time. But they, but they, 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 you know, that that is the work of Escoffier. You know, he he did that, and he wrote the recipes down. And eventually, in his later life, he published his great big sort of tome of, of recipes, his guide to culinary guide. Um, you know, with all this stuff in. You know, which, so where is it? When is this in time? Right. Where, so where, where where is he and when is he? So I mean, you know, take you. I mean, fundamentally, it's 1846 in a small village in Villeneuve-Loube, uh, which is down in the south of France, is where Escoffier was born. You know, I mean, I mean, he could have been anything, I suppose, as a kid, but you know. He was sent off to, to school to start an apprenticeship in a kitchen. You know, his uncle had a restaurant, so clearly gastronomy was in the family and, and they needed a job. And, and uncle so-and-so offered him his first job and, you know, he kind of stuck it out and he went off to, to learn how to be a, a, a rotisseur, you know, a roasting cook um, right. in Paris quite early on at the age of 19. Um, was Paris back then as well must have been a spectacular Well, I mean, there's a very interesting point in in France's history here, which you've got the Franco-Prussian War coming in 1870, which basically was uh, one of France's most humbling defeats, you know, of of, of that period. So everybody left. Um, So all the kind of people that could escape came to England. I mean, he wasn't one of them. He joined the army and he stuck around in France. But obviously there was a huge exodus of, of, of people that could escape to various other parts of Europe, including London and England and, and those places. So it wasn't a surprise that sort of later on, you know, once he'd established himself and after he'd left the army, he went to work in hotels and restaurants and he ended up in Monte Carlo in 1884, apparently. Um, I wonder what that was like. I wonder what Monte Carlo in 1884 was like, whether that was glamorous? Well, it must have been because it had, I mean, he was working as the, you know, as, 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 
of a chef at the Grand Hotel, you know, where he was employed by a certain Caesar Ritz. So, you know, this is where oh, the great wow. hoteliers of the world were gathering. I mean, these great big... I mean, I've only been to sort of Monte Carlo, Monaco a couple of times, but, you know, you've got to imagine these little bays, you know, in the French Riviera where boats and super yachts are stationed and everything on it is a great big grand hotel overlooking this very small, tiny beach, you know, with marinas and big boats and people just having fun in the sunshine. So, you know, this is this is the kind of era of those great big grand hotels. So... Yeah, they really are as well. To... I'm looking at pictures of the uh, of the Grand Hotel in Monte Carlo. This is more. This is later. This was sort of turn of the century. And I guess it the French were, you know, the Parisians. I mean, this is before international, super international travel. You know, it would be people from Paris coming in the colder months of the north of France to sit on the beach in the winter. You know, where the temperatures were, you know, pretty reasonable. You know, in the twenties, you know, it's quite warm down there. So you know, these would be winter resorts, and and, and you know, they would come and and have their their winter retreat there. You know. All part of the grand tour kind of things as well. It would be the one of the oh my god, it's so spectacular as well. And the inside of it is, I mean, it's it's just it looks like sort of old world opulence. Everything is white and and marbled mm. and but also strangely, uh, it sounds an old thing to say, understated in a very overstated way, but done done classy. You know, it's uh, it, well, it looks very similar to the Ritz, like you said. I mean, well, it's, well, I mean, it was run by Ritz. <laughs> It was, yeah, I mean, that, 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 clearly that <laughs> partnership between he and, and Caesar Ritz must have worked, you know, in lots of ways, because these places were clearly the kind of the go-to hotels of, of the, you know, not just the rich, but the royalty and the powerful. And, you know, people got to know them and they liked going there and they felt good. So they formed a really strong partnership. And I think they worked at a couple other places in different times of a year together as a kind of duo where Ritz would manage and, and he would run the kitchens. And it wasn't long after... I think it's in 1890, in fact, that, that they were invited to, to basically open um, what is now the Savoy Hotel in London. Now, you know, for those of the, the people that don't know where the Savoy is, it's just on the banks of the River Thames, just between sort of Charing Cross and the Strand, you know, so on there. they opened that? I didn't know that. Oh, well, the, st- really the, cool. the story of the Savoy Hotel is quite interesting. I don't know what, I mean, it must have been a hotel before, but... It was it was bought as part of a bulk purchase of the Savoy Theatre with the hotel bundled in by a man named Richard Doyley Cart. Now, as you will know, as a fan of the musical theatre, Richard Doyley Cart is is you know is the man behind you know all those. Um, I was going to say Gilbert O'Sullivan, but it's Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> um, operas, right? Yeah. You know, like the Mikado and and other such ones. Well, he Penzance. promoted those, did he? And he, he well, yes, on? he was the man. He was like the Cameron Macintosh of the whole operation. So Gilbert huh. and Sullivan would write the operas, and he would put them on. And I think he used the entire proceeds of the Mikado, which was a worldwide super hit, right? In in ways yeah. that you know only these things can be to buy a home for the Doily Cart Theatre, which he bought as the Savoy Theatre in London, which he also got. The attached hotel as part Just of the package. Just chucked in. Yeah, you got the hotel. And oh, so right. he must have. I don't anything. know how he met um, Ritz and Escoffier, but he must have been holidaying in his winter months in the south of France and just thought, I need these guys. And he brought them over to to run the Savoy Hotel for him, you know. Um, and I didn't so realize began... Ritz was Ritz was Swiss as well. Didn't realize that. Right. Never, never thought about it. But I, yeah, never, I never really considered him as a person. I mean, he was of a place, you know, which is another one of those. Well, I, I can only imagine he was the epitome of what we now understand as that kind of maitre d' house restaurant manager. You know, sort of hotel manager. Just 
must have had the charisma of of I don't know a very charismatic thing. You know, must have just been well, oozing his charm, was splendid, so, and I mean, just had a way. Point. You know, he was clearly the man that was able to you know greet and meet and entice and make feel at home some of the most notable people on earth at that time whether they be royal families from all over europe you know stars from america and far far afield like australia which becomes you know interesting in a minute you know and so they would come to the ritz to be looked after by this man to be cooked for by you know the greatest chef on earth at that time you know and and to just live in luxury for a short time and you know you can see how word of mouth or whatever you if you came to london you would have to stay at the ritz you know that's what you would do if you were in that world you know and it became you know the most exciting place you know for gastronomic purposes you know anywhere in the world i mean i think you'd be hard so the ritz know, came push- after the savoy then i'm guessing because well ah, went- oh, well we'll get to that bit oh, yeah sorry. i mean I so you know ahead. so you know, don't jump ahead don't jump sorry. ahead sorry um so, you know, they, they run the Savoy for a number of years. So, you know, during that period, I mean, I'm just trying to scan through my notes to see roughly, I guess. It's about 18, it was there till 1897. So they opened it in 1890. And for seven years, you know, Escoffier worked and was at his probably his, his you know, his, his peak of creativity. But he was, what again, we talked about this a little bit before when we talked about a restaurant in New York called Delmonico's. You know, Escoffier was always very, very good at understanding the power of celebrity, you know, in the dining room and would create dishes and name them after a diner's, you know, in the dining room. So obviously, you know, his dishes have maybe stood the test of time from my point of view anyway, but more than maybe, um, you know, they did uh, Charles Ranhofer at Delmonico's, you know. I mean, just to just to roll off a few, you see, you know, Scoffier invented the peach Melba in honour of a Australian singer Nellie Melba when she came and stayed at Ritz, you know, you know, sort of sort of in in 1893, you know, that was or whatever. And I mean, he also did another dish for her, Melba toast, which is less exciting and is just a piece of toast that's been split in half and then toasted again because apparently she's on a diet, um, <laughs> you know. But he uh, created sort of things for st- people like Sarah Bernhardt, who none of us are really going to understand who these people are, but they were very big, sort of notable theatrical. Yeah, like the Tom Cruise, the Tom Cruise. Absolutely, you know, he would. Be, I'm sure he would have done some kind of cruise pudding yeah. you know top gun yeah. tart you know whatever you know and and, and that was the way they <laughs> rolled that you know he you know he would create these dishes with flair and theater in the dining room and name them after the most exciting person who was coming that you know whatever to 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 give them an extra little bit of celebrity ness you know that's that's how the, the savoy was and you would go there i mean you know you think of what peach melba is you know i mean we still have peach melba and i remember you know these are you know, these are iconic things. Now, if you opened a restaurant today, you know, at some point you would look down your pudding menu and think, should we put on a peach melba? You know, just because it's just essentially a very simple thing, but its name is tied to this period of, of development of, of gastronomy and the organisation of the restaurant kitchen that it represents something. It represents something that's going to stand back. Dish will be there forever. I mean, it's ice cream, raspberry sauce and peaches. But it's touchable. If you If you... The genius of it is if you're a punter and you want to get near these celebrities, it's much like now where celebrities wear certain clothes and everyone wants to buy them. It's the same principle as it's any any level of sort of it's influence, right? Mm. And that's and the clever thing about that dessert is also that is uh, understandable influence. Because like you said, this it's it's incredibly simple and really nice. So it's not like it's like a celebrity wearing a, an outfit from M and S or something. You go, oh, I really fancy that because I can, you know, 
that I could be like a bit of the stardust to rub off on me and be a part of it, but it's not so odd that I would feel weird with it. And the Peach Melba's perfect example. It's like you can get close to the celebrity by having it. You are also going to enjoy it, which I think is is really, really clever. And I think probably now wouldn't work in the same way if it was food. Well, it's harder, isn't it? I mean, you know, working with Heston, we have one or two things in our world, which I would say people are so aware of they travel the world or see an opportunity to go visit to try. We have the meat fruit at the, the, you know, the, the restaurant at the Mandarin Dinner by Heston Blumenthal as, as an iconic, super iconic starter of a meat fruit, which is the, you know, the, the chicken of a parfait dipped in, in Mandarin jelly and, you know, served. It looks just like an orange and people just want to try it, you know. And, and you know, I imagine part of the buzz of going to the Savoy at that time was to have the Peach Melba. You know, or to have you know the bomb Nero, you know, a, a, which is a, like a flaming ice cream. You know, so you would cover it in meringue, a bit like a baked Alaska, and and pour burning liqueur over it. But it would just be Great. fun. You know, these yeah. were fun things to 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 have as part of your experience in a dining room. You know, so that period from sort of eighteen ninety to eighteen sort of ninety seven, he's doing all this stuff. You know, and everyone's talking about it. I mean, it's front page news. It must have been making money and all sorts of stuff. And he he was basically. A showman, and people were beginning to recognise chefs in that way we've talked about before. These celebrity chefs. Now we have television and radio and all sorts. Back then they didn't. They had, you know, sort of newsprint and and word of mouth. But you know, chefs were becoming famous. Escoffier was famous. You know, he was it was big news. You know, so you know he he made working in the kitchen something to aspire to doing, which was prior to that time not something that people would aspire to do you know so all through this journey people are suddenly thinking wow I mean you know maybe I'll be a famous chef I could be a chef but you know he's elevating the world of of culinary work to to places it's never been before I mean it's all new but obviously as I'm about to explain things took a rather interesting turn in 1897 you know oh I mean Imagine ego. It's normally ego that leads to these. Bits. Well, I mean, apparently, I mean, I, I, you wonder how closely these things are monitored. But around 1897, the board of directors of the Savoy began to notice but revenues, um, you know, coming out of the restaurant, you know, even money the restaurant is making seem to be falling, despite the fact that the dining room's got more and more people going through it. Right? <laughs> not cooking you know. the books, is he? Well, apparently, you know, they discreetly hired an audit company. Yeah, in Henton, hired private investigators and all sorts of stuff to start secretively sort of watching, you know, Ritz, Escoffier, and there's another character called Eschenard, who I think might have been the restaurant manager at the time, were working with Ritz and Escoffier. So the three of them, they were watching them, trying to understand how this phenomenon could be happening. But we can see the number of people eating in our restaurant and staying in our hotel is going up, but the amount of money that's coming into the restaurant isn't going down. So where is this money going? So they spent six months investigating this and eventually uncovered quite a substantial you know detailed fraudulent exercise yeah what Escoffier was doing it well what what transpired was that in in whatever the year later 1898 all three of them were were brought in front of a board yeah and immediately dismissed on the spot pretty much for gross negligence and breaches of duty and mismanagement technically is what 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 was what was happening they were they were you know they were asked to leave immediately yeah, that day, yeah. And so what happened you know, subsequently is that most of the kitchen and hotel staff who were loyal to the great Ritz and Escoffier in particular, yeah, started to get disgruntled, yeah, and started revolting, 
you know, literally wow. in the kitchen, banging their knives, refusing to leave the kitchen, refusing to let these people go. There was pretty much a standoff with the constabulary. He had to be called in to remove these people forcibly from the kitchen. Yeah. This and eventually great. 16 chefs and, and cooks, you know, from France and, and Switzerland were all sort of, you know, arrested by the Metropolitan Police and bundled out of the restaurants oh, I love on the it. day. So it's an incredible scene. And, what, and apparently this is how... Look, I'll try and explain what I've read and see if I'm, I know we can understand what was what's happening here. But this is how apparently the fraud was was being operated. But you know, and and uh, Scofia confessed, right? These, you know, they didn't deny it. They they in fact confessed to the crime. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you know, um, the most serious. They must have been doing several things, right? There must have been lots and lots and lots of little backhanders going on. I think that's the point. But the most serious. Um, and I suppose is you know the one that would eventually, you know whatever the straw that broke the camel's back, whatever, you know was about how he was you know, taking kickbacks from suppliers, yeah, where, where, you know which which almost was coming up to around five ten percent of of all purchases in the in the hotel. So everything that was being bought by the hotel going through the kitchen, Escoffier and Ritz were taking money on top for that, yeah, you know, as a result. Right. So apparently this is how it worked where. Escoffier would would buy 600 eggs, say, right, from his supplier. The supplier would then pay Escoffier a bribe on top of the cost of those 600 eggs and then make the difference up by not giving him 600 eggs, but only giving him 450, right? So he'd be buying 450 eggs for twice the price of of, of 450 eggs, but half the money would be going to him and he'd only be recording 600 eggs through the books. I think that's what it means. But that's where right? all the cash is going because they're having to buy twice as many eggs. Twice as they? much yeah, for food. Four yeah, times the price. Yes. You know, and so, you know, and all that extra cost is being run straight to it. It's not being accounted for. It's just disappearing, right? And, yeah, you know, this is old money and I don't have an old money calculator, but the Savoy's lost his total to more than sixteen thousand pounds, which seems like absolutely nothing, but this is eighteen ninety seven. Yeah, I was gonna think so, you were say about sixteen pounds, because that's yeah. probably about four million pounds now. I don't know, yeah. So I mean it must be, it. yeah, I guess we'd we'd probably have to do a, a well, think about the size of those pound notes back there. They were the huge ones, they're like the celebrity <laughs> Just checks, one note. They? So imagine sixteen thousand pounds like, of them. Trucks to, to carry the things. That's I mean it's a bit To which of a which Scotia was asked though. to repay eight thousand pounds pounds of that so half of that he was asked to repay it oh so was he was he um bankrupt from that yes thing? and so was allowed to settle the debt for 500 pounds since that's all he had oh my god what a fall this is crazy mm. right so i mean he was okay so great chef rubbish at nicking money because that's a terrible plan because someone's eventually going to figure out hang about what i mean it was pretty obvious that there must be a better way to cook the books than that but um so then he, so he's out in his ear. So he's out in his ear with Ritz, but then Ritz had been doing a bit of background work of his own. He's clearly more entrepreneurial than a Scoffier, and had already established what he what was going to be called the Ritz Hotel Development Company. Yeah, so you know, he then immediately invited a Scoffier um, to set up the kitchens for that business unit, which they opened their first, you know, their first operation, which was the uh, Ritz Hotel in Paris in 1898. And then the following year in 1899, we opened the Ritz Carlton Hotel in London. So, you know, oh. within two years, they're running two hotels again. So, you know, they bounced. Just up the road from the one they've been booted out of Yeah, as well. of course, you know, and, and, you know, and I think, you know, that's, I mean, that's Ritz there. I, can't, I, I don't believe that would be a Scoffier would be able to do that. I think he was quite beaten by the whole experience. It was probably, you know, contemplating all sorts of dark thoughts is my view you know you know but Ritz was much more entrepreneurial and forward thinking and, and already had a bigger plan for himself um 
and that's what they did. You know, that's really how, how their, their rest of their lives, you know, rolled on. Ritz, you know, gradually moved out of, of operational work and moved into retirement. You know, in 1906, after they opened the Ritz London, so they opened the Ritz Carlton, the Carlton Hotel, which obviously became called the Ritz Carlton, you know, and the, and the Ritz Hotel in 1906, and and the Scoffier remained there um, as a figurehead of the Carlton Hotel in London, um, but overseeing the operation of the others until his own retirement in 1920. So they had a kind of, you know, a less bustling buzzy period but they were very successful in their own way but I don't think financially Scoffee ever accumulated quite and you know huge amounts of wealth out of it I think he was you know it was always unable to invest wisely and probably you know bought poorly and did all sorts of things remarkable but, you know. though the remarkable though isn't it to have such a fall from great and yet still have the legacy well his legacy is in the work in the kitchen and I think that's why you know in a way history will forgive that fraud you know, it was it was you know crime and and all sorts of wrong in many ways. But you know, you're right. The legacy is about something else. The legacy is about the way that he reorganised and and brushed up the the world of the restaurant kitchen in a way it never been addressed before. You know, and 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 also you know it, he wrote a number of books. So books always help you lay down a legacy. You know, your word is not questioned in that way. It's not open for debate. It's there to be looked at and read without you know sort of outside influence and voice so you know his, his guide to kill an air which he wrote in 1903 so you know only 15 17 years whatever before he died was his great tome of all his work and all those recipes from peach melba to whatever the mother sources and the explanation of how kitchens should run and and you know little they always included these kind of explanations of service and and one of the other things that he was very very instrumental in, in doing was switching away from you know these very complex complicated menus which were huge tomes of everything that was on offer and often it would be paraded around in different ways restaurants didn't work like they did today until Escoffier came along so Escoffier will write a menu in an order that the dishes would come to you at the table and that became known as service à la russe it's a Russian style and that that that's Escoffier you know that kind of starter main dessert you know it's five 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 on a menu or six of six and six or whatever you know that's all a scoffier so the whole operation the management of kitchens as well as the behavior and actual physical state of working in the kitchen was improved and organized by a scoffier during his lifetime and then outlaid in his books for people to see and learn from and that's how restaurants are run today i mean they don't haven't really changed you know in that sense you know this whole idea of giving people um staff food and looking after them which you know restaurants of of any caliber should really you know put you know right to the heart of their operation to keep their staffs healthy and and happy you know to they stay longer with you as a business but work better during the days is, is again comes out of this time of escoffier and just organizing that kitchen brigade you know like a military operation but understanding they need to be fed and watered well so they work well there's no point having them broken and ill in a kitchen you need to keep them fit and healthy and, and as a result he was much healthier I mean he wouldn't drink that much he didn't smoke you know I mean you know kitchens became a much more healthy place to be if that's not too you know strong a word but you know they just he just cleaned them all up you know chefs started to behave like the chefs we recognize you know they would wear clean white outfits they wouldn't swear and curse at the, you know in the kitchens they wouldn't be aggressive towards one another you know they would just behave and be polite and courteous you know to everybody and that's that's the you know that's 
the kind of chef that we recognize here you know from this point in 2022 when you look at these fine restaurants run by you know whoever whether it be marcus waring or Cless smith or heston or or whoever you pick the kitchens are places of you know just organized professional work yeah. food worship i mean it's but i love what i love about these the hall of fame when we do it and the way you explore these is the brilliant thing is Yes, there's the legacy of these people, but you always reveal the humanity behind it, the person. And I feel for me personally, once I hear that someone was actually a human with the foibles and issues and highs and lows, it makes them just, well, much more relatable and it somehow makes their work even more remarkable as well. Because, yes, I've heard I've heard the name and I've heard the talk of what he did. But when you discover the ups and downs of the life, the journey, the glamour, but also the fall and that, that life in the public eye, I don't know, I just find it absolutely fascinating. And suddenly it becomes a rounded person rather than mm. just this sort of name. And I think sometimes when you hear these names from history, you assume that somehow they were kind of bestowed with greatness or there was something always in them. And actually you forget that they weren't. And often these people were making as many mistakes as the rest of us do but they just happened to make mm. the right mistakes in the right way at the right time to get into these positions and then were clever enough or insightful enough to double down on their abilities and played the PR game the right way, but also genuinely had something wonderful and interesting to say to the world, especially in this guise, and, and, and make a real difference. And, you know, he probably wasn't the first person to think of these things, but there has to be a level of charisma and leadership that makes people pay attention to you when you say, right, now we're going to run it like this, and now you're going to stop drinking, and now you're going to act in a certain way. So he, he must have had this, this, this power of personality as well that could turn these kitchens into these mm. tools And of he must precision. have been a great teacher. I mean, I think there's an element here where to be a great leader, you've first got to be a great teacher because that's what... That's what you're giving. You know, you're giving knowledge and experience, but people must understand that and they must absorb that and they must feel themselves grow for whatever, you know, wherever they were to wherever they want to be. They must feel that they're being helped on a journey of something. And so he must have been able to teach them the value of these skills as well as these recipes, you know. You know, these are life-changing skills for these chefs. You know, people still do travel around the restaurant worlds gathering information for themselves to learn what they want to cook and you know you can only do that if you've got great teachers in the kitchen and so he must have been a great teacher so you know you know you would have been busting a gut to get a conversation with him I would have been you know I'm the kind of person that would just want to spend half an hour with him at the end of service having a brandy yeah. and just 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 trying to see what you could learn in that short window of time because that's what always these great chefs offer you you know a chance to understand something that you're interested in you know and I'm interested in cooking and food but also just kind of what it is to be that kind of leader what 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 are you how are you teaching these people how do you get them to respond how do you get them to care it's the biggest challenge i mean you know i've ever come across as in the teams that i've managed in different mainly in television but in other guys is how do you get your team to give a shit how do you get them to be arrested for you i mean that's you know, the thing they're prepared to go to prison because you know, of this guy and that's pretty that's that's about as loyal as it gets right i mean that's- no absolutely and, and there's, there's this whole i mean we don't do podcasts on on philosophy but you know there's a whole element of there's a whole idea called charismatic leadership which i'm quite fascinated by this idea that people dismiss it as a, as a leadership tool but charisma is not enough you know to to make great leadership changes yet history teaches us the whole time that the great leaders had great personalities and great charisma but yeah. you know the scientific analysis of leadership always looks for an outcome you know it looks for what how do they and then they try to retrofit the journey of what leadership was whereas you know these kind of characters you just know they must have been charismatic leaders so they must have had something that you know 
just made you rise up to try that bit harder to go into work and try and be the best and you're right you know go to war for technically or go for a fight you know on behalf of the person that you're 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 being led by you know must be inspired by charisma more than rules and you know if there was just kitchen rules that you must protect your just people wouldn't follow them there has to be a human connection I think it needs for me and I'm always fascinated by that I love to look these people in the eyes you know I've you know, over the years I've met, you know, I've tried to converse and meet as many of the great chefs as I possibly can that are still around, you know, from Pierre Kaufman to Marco. Obviously, I know Heston Well, Gordon, you know, these characters that, that inspire other people to work so, you know, um, committedly for them. You know, they have something. They have something, you know, which I can't put my finger on, but it's that quoi that they talk about in, in whatever it is, you know, Tom Cruise again. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, it's that thing, you know, it's, it's undefinable that certain people have and if that's charisma then that's interesting you know for me you know it just it's just fascinating and when you also couple that with creative ingenuity with food then I'm 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 absolutely in you know you know if you can if you can do your discovery work while eating peach melba made by the man <laughs> that makes the best peach melba in like you know on earth then that's I mean that's just that's a dream right a worth you know? okay so I mean a worthy probably the wor- one of the worthiest entrants into the Chef Hall of Fame and a fascinating journey back in food history. Well, again. that's it. I mean, it, 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 you know, I mean, he's an he's an obvious entry. That's my point at the beginning. I mean, obviously, of course, Scoffy has got to be in. You know, I mean, he wrote the book of food, but actually, just as a human being, the stories were even if he even if his recipes didn't add up to much, his journey and what he's what he did, you know, outside of that recipe creation, is also worthy of of, of inclusion in my view. You know, because he did so much. I mean, he's almost. It's going to be very hard to find someone to to put in next time. To be honest, well, there you go. That's the next challenge. <laughs> uh, James, thank you ever so much for that. I thoroughly enjoyed that, and I suddenly generally have a new view on someone I've heard of, but knew not all that about. So that and was, get that yourself a, a copy of of the Guide Culinaire by Escoffier. I mean, it is. Yeah, we're getting those sources, mother sources. Well, this is it. Sources. When we talk about people need to, you know, have be able to cook in the kitchen. That's all you need. Pierre Kaufman said it himself. That's all you need to be a chef is a copy of that book. And a lot of butter. Um, yes. <laughs> on that note, James, thank you ever so much. That was a delight. I will speak to you again next week. Pleasure. See you soon.